0: Good morning. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you this morning. It is so good to see each of you, and especially we welcome our mothers. We wish you a happy Mother's Day. Uh, what an honor and a blessing uh, mothers are, and what great honor they deserve. And in just a moment, we're going to have rolling on the screen pictures of our new mothers, our mothers again, as of the last year. And while that is rolling, I want to read to you... A writing, I'm not for sure who the author is of this, it's unknown. But it's written after the style of First Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the love chapter in the Bible. And so as we roll those, I'll read these. It says, If I live in a house of spotless beauty with everything in its place, but have not love, I am a housekeeper, not a homemaker. If I have time for waxing, polishing, and decorative achievements, but have not love, My children learn cleanliness, but not godliness. Love leaves dust in search of a child's laugh. Love smiles at tiny fingerprints on a newly cleaned window. Love wipes away the tears before it wipes up the spilled milk. Love picks up the child before it picks up the toys. Love is present through the trials. Love reprimands, reproves, and is responsive. Love crawls with the baby walks with the toddler, and runs with the child, then stands aside to let the youth walk into adulthood. Love is the key that opens salvation's message to a child's heart. Before I became a mother, I took glory in my house of perfection. Now I glory in God's perfection of my child. As a mother, there is much I must teach my child, but the greatest of all is love. To each of these mothers and to all of you, we do wish you a happy Mother's Day. What a blessing it is for the lives of these children to be raised in an environment where God is magnified and mothers that love God and they want their children to serve God. And many of us had such a privilege growing up and we're especially grateful for mothers that have offered us such situations. A young police recruit was being given an exam exam And one of the questions was this, if you had to arrest your mother, what would you do? And he answered, call for backup. (laughs) Now I had a mother like that. Loving and tender, but wow, could she be firm. When she promised a spanking, she never forgot it. She would make good on her promises. Many of you ladies enjoyed hearing her teach the Bible class this morning, the ladies' Bible class, and some have asked for tapes, and you can sign up for those tapes in the foyer they are Uh, that was recorded and they are available. What a blessing godly mothers are to us and how interesting it is to take the text that has already been capably read for us this morning and put it really in the whole context of that which it was written. Even though it's a very beautiful passage about motherhood, and this morning we'll study this text and we'll pull out of it some wonderful aspects of the way God designed motherhood. Keep in mind, this blessing is not something we designed. It's not something we created. It's something we enjoy as we participate in God's design. But then tonight, we'll come back and study the very same text, And use the same main examples except we'll see how it's written in this context where Paul is literally saying if everyone will learn these mother-like principles, we'll do a better job of evangelism. We'll do a better job of turning the world upside down. Let me remind you where we've been over the past few weeks that leads us up to this point. In Acts the 17th chapter, Paul was entering in to Thessalonica. It was he and Silas. And as they entered in, they're was a great ride and a stir because the Jews that did not want to be converted created this mob-like setting. And what they said about these people is they said, they that have turned the world upside down have come here too. In other words, Paul and Silas were so effective at teaching Christianity that they had turned people's lives 180 degrees and his reputation had preceded them. In other words, they were capturing the heart of the communities in which they were going. And so we've been taking now for several weeks at looking at various lessons out of the lives of those of Thessalonica. And now we're in the second chapter seeing what is it that we can do to capture the heart of Mount Juliet. What is it we can do to capture the heart of Tennesseans? What is it that we can do to capture the heart of Americans? Now note this. If we drop back just a few verses before the text, we're in the first chapter and in verse 7. And notice in the first chapter and verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, So you become examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now skipping down to verse 9, I want you to notice this phrase, What manner of entry. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, not only have you made a tremendous change in your life, but this change is being spoken about even by those of Macedonia and Achaia. And not only are they talking about you guys that have made the change, Paul says, they're talking about us and what manner of entry we had to you. In other words, the question would be this. How is it you go into a community and capture their hearts? What manner of entry did you have? And that's why when we read in the second chapter in verse 1, this is still the topic manner. What manner of entry did you have? Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You see, he's leading off now in this chapter saying, for the next several verses, I want to talk to you about how our coming to you really was. In other words, they're already talking about what manner of entry we had. We know that it wasn't a waste of time. It produced wonderful results. There are a lot of people now that are Christians. The church is there now in Thessalonica. How is it that we came? Now, we're going to go back and just scan some of the verses that were just read, just to lay the groundwork for this morning's lesson. Read with me, if you will, verse 1 and 2, these underlined phrases here about their coming to them in verse 1 and 2. Notice in 2, but even we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. How did they enter in? What manner did they come to them? He says, one, you remember, we came to you kind of beat up. Physically, literally, not mentally exhausted. We came to you beat up. We came to you persecuted. Those of you that that know your Bible, let me refresh your memory. We're coming out of Acts the 17th chapter as we think about him entering into Thessalonica. Back up one chapter. Many of you remember what's at the end of Acts 16. Acts 16 is when they were in Philippi. You remember when they were preaching at Philippi, they were arrested. You remember their clothes, imagine this, were literally torn off of them in this persecution. They took rods and beat their back, laying stripes on them. They laid their hands on them and not just threw them into prison, put them in the innermost section of the prison. The high security section, and said, put stocks on them. And it was there, remember, that the earth quaked and then the jailer was converted. We call him the Philippian jailer, remember that? And it's after that that they leave. They leave Philippi and where do they go? They go to Thessalonica. And so what manner of entry did they have? Paul says, you remember we had stripes on our back. We were kind of beat up when we came into you. But you remember this? We were bold in the gospel. They weren't timid. Well, I've been beat up and, and, and I spoke up for Jesus in Philippi. I, I'm afraid to speak up for Jesus now in Thessalonica. No, not at all. They were beat up in Philippi and now they're coming in bold in Thessalonica. Now let's read the next uh, two verses. Look at verse 3 and 4. For exhortation... Did not come from error, uncleanness, nor was it deceit. But notice that God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God is, is testing our hearts. Now, notice this. They came willing to be persecuted, but bold in what? False teaching? No. In deception? No. They came bold in the truth. Why? God had entrusted the truth with them. Friends, that is the commission of the church. We are the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. 1 Timothy 3 and 15. And so we have been entrusted with the truth. And we need to make sure that our entry into the Mount Juliet community, our entry into the state of Tennessee, our entry across the world is that we will stand with the truth and that we will be bold with the truth. But now notice this last thing as we finish up verse 4 and then we go into verse 5. Notice says, he says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattery words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. How did we come to you? He's mentioned these other things, and finally he says, and you'll remember this. We didn't try to flatter anyone with our words. We just spoke the truth. And Paul, what if you say it and it offends them? Well, he could say, I did that in Philippi and and they beat me. I did that in Thessalonica and you'll remember, they run me out of town too. Tore up Jason's house. Remember that back a few weeks ago we studied in Acts 17? He wasn't there to flatter people. He was there to speak the word of God. He also wasn't there as a cloak of covetousness. In other words, I'm going to look like I'm out here to to get across the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, but really what I want is money from you. No, it wasn't a cloak of covetousness. And God would stand at His witness that this is true. Now, I want you to note this. He's given several facts that for us is leading up to the primary text. But I want you to notice this. He gives several facts, and how's the best way for us to learn? How's the best way for us to remember something? You know how when a teacher at school would give you facts and then they would give you some kind of analogy, some kind of illustration that would help you put those facts into real life? It helped you better apply it, but it also helped you remember it. That's what he's doing here. He's teaching us in the second chapter how we can go out and make a powerful impact on a community. He's given facts of the way they came into Thessalonica. But note this. He's about to give them an illustration that will make all of this come to life. Is there any surprise that what he's saying is, we came to you like a mother. And he's saying to us by example, I want you to go out into your communities like a mother. As I already said, tonight we'll come back and we'll look at this text as it relates to going out in the community. But this morning... We want to look at these same four points to give honor to the model of motherhood that God has given for us. Let's read this again in verse 7 8. Notice this, we've read up through 5 and then 6, and now notice as we read 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because... Of, because you had become dear to us. First, I'd like you to notice the first aspect that he says there in verse 7. As he says, but we were gentle among you. There's nothing like a mother's tenderness. The idea of gentle here is of tenderness or kindness. And one of the great stories in the Bible that helps us to best understand what a mother's gentleness or kindness would be is not told so much from the aspect of a mother, although she was a mother, but it's told more from the aspect of a mother-in-law. Oftentimes we call it the story of Ruth, but this morning I want us to call it the story of Naomi. Do you remember in the book of Ruth? Do you remember that Naomi and her husband had to leave their home in Bethlehem and they went over and they lived in Moab in a foreign land and it was there that their two sons took wives. We don't know exactly what happened, but ten years later this lady went through a tragic loss. Her husband died and both sons died. And now she's left with two daughter-in-laws. Most would think that a woman that was an older woman would cling to those daughter-in-laws. I want you to be reminded of the culture of their day. It was very difficult, pretty much impossible for a woman to live a comfortable life on her own in that day and time. I'm not saying it ought to be that way. I'm just saying that was the facts. And so for them to survive was going to be just literally that, just survival. You would think that this older woman would cling to those two young women. You would think that maybe she'd put a guilt trip upon them. You have to take care of me. You took my sons and now they're gone. You owe it to the family to look after me. Here I am in this foreign land. This is your home. Look after me. But notice, it's her kindness that leads her to say, in other words, I can't provide for you. I can't give you clothing in a house. I can't give you a future husband. I can't take care of you. I want you to go back to your fathers. They can take care of you and let them help you. It was going to leave her, an older woman, alone in a foreign land. As a matter of fact, in verse 8, she would say it this way, The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. What a beautiful, beautiful woman. A woman that was tender. And a woman that was kind. Willing to look after what was best in the lives of her daughter-in-laws instead of what was best in her life. Now... To just give a quick ending to the story, many of you may remember that Ruth was one of the daughter-in-laws that refused to leave. She says, my, your God will become my God and your people will become my people. And she refused to leave. And so they went back to Bethlehem. And it was there that the mother-in-law was kind as she encouraged no doubt everyone to accept her daughter-in-law that now was going to be a foreigner in this land. It was there that the mother-in-law encouraged this relationship with Boaz. And it was there that they finally came together and they were married. And they had a child named Obed. And you remember the women gathered around and they gave honor to Naomi. Isn't that beautiful? It shows that her gentleness, her kindness was recognized by everyone. And it was Obed that had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named King David. What a beautiful story that really a great bit of that story has to do with a wonderful daughter-in-law named Ruth, but a wonderful mother-in-law named Naomi that was tender. So as we look at Paul entering into, as we go back to our text, as we look at Paul entering into this community and saying, this is the manner that I came unto you. What manner was it, Paul? He says, you remember, I was gentle with you, like a mother. I was tender with you. But notice the second thing. He also said, but we were gentle among you. That's a powerful phrase in the Scriptures. Among you points to the fact that the mother is available. The mother is willing to give her time. The mother is among the people. In other words, God did not design motherhood to say, well, you give birth to a child and then someone else takes the child and the mother sends orders over. And the mother lives in one room or in one house and, and the children live in another house somewhere and, and there's just some kind of communication occasionally. We would look at a setup like that and we would say, that's not really motherhood. That's right. That's not the model of motherhood. Because what is the model of motherhood? The model of motherhood is that mothers live among the children. That's why when the Lord gives the model of an elder, he speaks about elders in Acts the 20th chapter and verse 28. He, he speaks of them living among the sheep. In other words, they live among the flock. They don't sit in an office high up, separated from the people, and cast down orders. They live among the people. That's why he says of elders in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, they don't lord over the flock but they serve by example because they're rubbing shoulders. They are a part of the congregation. Friends, all throughout the Scriptures, the emphasis usually associated with among has to do with the relationships that are built as people make themselves available to the other person that's involved in that relationship. So here we see Paul saying, this is how I, I, I went into Thessalonica. I went in as a gentle mother to live Among the people. One study says that by the time a child reaches 18 years of age, that a mother will have invested 18,000 child-related hours into the life of that child. That would be the equivalent to three months of leisure time of every year. It is amazing to think How a mother makes herself available for her children. Many of us take that for granted. Maybe some of us have never stopped to think about it or appreciate it. But isn't it wonderful to have a a mother that she's just always available when the need is there. Not available to hinder, but available to promote. You remember the great mother Mary. Gave birth to Jesus Christ. She made herself available, and when the angel came and no doubt shocked her with the announcement that she was being considered, asked, if you will, to bring forth Jesus Christ, the question's going to be what is Mary's answer going to be? She didn't wake up that morning pondering that particular thought, I can assure you. Now, if we had time, we could develop this in depth, but we don't. Let me simply say to you, reading from the text in Luke, the first chapter, this was her answer to the angel. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. That's what she calls herself. I'm a maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You see what she was saying to God? I will be available. You want my womb, I'll be available. You want me to mother this child? I'll be available. But notice this. She also must have been available to point that child back toward his father. We never see Mary being a hindrance. Her time, her availability was always to support Jesus. We see the beautiful scene in the temple when he was 12 years old and her having to hear the words and try to digest those as she placed them in his heart. And I'm here to do the will of my Father which has sent me. And then, even at the time that Jesus is on the cross, do you remember where Mary was? She was there. She was available. She was available at the foot of the cross. What a beautiful, beautiful example. A junior high science teacher taught all of one class period on a particular day about magnets. The next day, he thought he would give a little pop quiz that would be fun because it would be so easy that everyone would get it right and it would just help drive home the, the fact of, of the principle of magnets. And so he said, I want everybody to get out a piece of paper. We're having a pop quiz today. And the moans, oh no, oh no, this is an easy one. Everybody will get this right. It's one question. It begins with an M and it has six letters and it picks up things. What's the correct answer? Over half the class put mothers. Why? Because many of us have experienced that model of motherhood where she's always available. She's always there for us. What a beautiful, beautiful aspect of motherhood. Let's look at the third thing out of this same verse, and, and we've got to pick up time here as we move this to a close. Look in verse 7. And see the appraisal. Notice in verse 7, "...just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children." The idea of cherish comes from the Greek that would have to do with warm or brood. In other words, it's the idea of a bird, and if you think of a chicken, warming her eggs, incubating her eggs until they hatch. But then even after the chicks are hatched, she constantly puts her, her wings out and she brings them under her for warmth but also for protection." And so that's why the word cherish comes from that. It's the idea that a mother would do anything to cherish her young. A mother would do anything to cherish or protect her young. And so here he says, I came to you as a mother cherishes her young. What a beautiful thought. A wildlife worker was going through and he was giving his survey of a forest that had been burned. And he saw something that was most unusual. As he walked along, he saw a bird that had its feathers spread out and was charred. And he thought to himself, that's so unusual. He'd seen many creatures that were land animals. It would have been no surprise it would have, if it would have been some kind of animal that just runs across the ground. But he, his, it drew it, him to this particular object to think, why would a bird just not fly? A bird could quickly outrun a flame by flying. As he went over to investigate, he stooped down with a stick, and he turned the bird over. And underneath the charred bird were the babies still alive. She would protected her young at all costs. Any of us that have grown up on a farm have seen chickens, and other birds do that on a regular basis. No wonder the Greek word comes from that idea of to brood. In other words, it's to cherish at all costs. And so, here as he thinks about motherhood, we see this very same principle... When we think about the wisdom of Solomon, he drew off of a principle of motherhood that if we really stop stop and contemplate motherhood, this makes sense. You remember it was the two women. Both were harlots and both had babies. And one smothered her baby during the night as she rolled over on it. She found the baby deceased. She took her baby and she swapped it with the living baby and put the living baby back in her bed. The next morning, the mother now that has the dead baby beside her Tries to awaken the baby to let the baby nurse. She finds her baby's dead. Upon closer examination that morning, she finds out in 1 Kings, the third chapter, that's not her baby at all. She goes over and sees that her baby is alive in the arms of the other. The other will not admit to this, and so now they're standing before the king. The king only has two witnesses, and both of them are telling opposite stories. Both of them are claiming the life of this one baby. And in his wisdom, what does he do? Many of you already know the story. He pulls off the aspect of motherhood, where the appraisal of motherhood is that of so high. Mothers esteem their children greatly. Did you know that your mama probably thinks more of you than anybody on this earth? Your mother thinks that you can do probably about anything. Now, think about this. He asked for a sword. He says, I'll take and I'll divide the baby in half and I'll give half of the baby to each of you. He knew what would happen and it did happen. The mother spoke up and said, No, give her the baby and let him live. Solomon declared that this in fact was the mother. She'd proven herself. How blessed we are to have mothers. Mothers that esteem our worth, that cherish us to the point of protecting us. But then finally, I'd like for you to notice in verse 7 and 8, He said, A nursing mother, and then in verse 7, To impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives. Think of this commitment. A mother is one that imparts life to us. The umbilical cord represents that, but also once born. The very fact that that the baby nurses from the mother also reminds us that the mother imparts life. And then as He says... I've come to you to impart the gospel, but he says, I'd impart my very own life. No wonder he links that kind of teaching with that of motherhood. Because mothers are committed to their children to the end. And the beautiful teaching of Proverbs, the 31st chapter, we sometimes, women hear that and they kind of cringe, and and they say, "I, I don't like that passage. It makes motherhood so high that no one could obtain it. I want to remind you, that was written by a mother. It was Lemuel's mother that taught him these things, and he's the one that had these things written. And what was it that she was trying to teach him? In the first paragraph, she was teaching him that one day he would become king, and that if his life was to be what it ought to be, he was going to have to avoid women that would destruct his life. He was going to have to avoid alcohol that would destruct his life, and he was going to have to have open eyes to see the needy, and be generous and fulfilling and speaking on their behalf. And then, what is the last long paragraph that many of us know, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman? He's he's being taught by His mother. You're not always going to be, in my life, there's going to be another woman in your life. And I want you to find a woman that's going to help you be everything that God wants you to be. You see, it's the idea that a godly Mother realizes how important it is that that commitment go for a lifetime. To help them find and become not only what they should be in the first 20 years of life, but to find a spouse that will help them to become what they ought to be for the rest of their life. And that's what this godly woman was teaching her son preacher heard a motivational speaker one time and and he was real impressed with the guy and he had a great story and the story went like this he said I spent the best part of my life in the arms of another woman other than my wife and the crowd was kind of shocked by that and he said it was my mother and he thought wow that, that really worked the audience really listened when he said that I want to try that Sunday morning so he gets up Sunday morning and and he begins he begins his lesson same way I i Gave the best part of my life and I spent that in the arms of of another woman other than my wife. And the crowd gasped and they're shocked. And his mind went blank. Five or ten seconds goes by and finally he says, And for the life of me, I can't remember her name. That's not good. But think of this. That really is what Proverbs 31 is is all about. It's the idea where a mother's saying, as long as you're in my arms, I want you to grow up to become this kind of man. But when you leave my arms, I want you to go into the arms of a woman that's going to help you continue in that same direction toward heaven. That's commitment. That's what mothers do. They don't hinder us. They help us step right along into heaven. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. Recently, Dennis Buchanan's mother passed away. And it'll be a long time before I forget this description that he gave. He said, I know that all blessings come from God. But God sent a whole lot of blessings to my family through my mother. A lot of us would have to say amen to that. It's God's plan. And what a beautiful plan it is when it's worked by God's way. We honor all of you godly mothers this morning. God wants to adopt us into His family. The greatest family to be a part of is not a physical family, believe it or not. The greatest family to be a part of is God's family. What a blessing it is to be adopted into His family. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, won't you consider that this morning? Or if you have, but yet you have separated from the family, won't you come home to the family this morning? It's our theme for the whole year, is coming home. What a wonderful thing to do is to come back to a family that loves you, an Almighty Father that loves you, and a family that loves you. If we can help you in any way, come